<laughs> uh, let the little children come to me, right? I love that. Um, so Les Boxell. <laughs> um, you know, I'd like to spend maybe the first 10 to 15 minutes extolling his virtues here this morning. I know he's a bit of a diva that likes the spotlight. And so I think, uh, Les, we should just go ahead and, and say your name over and over. I know how much you love that. Uh, but uh, I do want to say thanks to Les. I grew up in this church. I grew up with his boys, Troy, uh, Troy and Todd. And uh, Les is just one of those figures of faith that, as Old Man Brinkman said, that uh, really just uh, served. Because Old Man Brinkman was doing his, his driver's license, as he said, when, when, when Les started this deal. I think I was in the fourth grade doing long division at that time and clearly unqualified to do any kind of treasury work. So I'm very grateful that Les has done this work all these years. Les, thank you. And thank you for just being one of those figures of our faith that uh, that just serves without the need for recognition. I really appreciate that. So I am P.D. Kapsner, as Taylor uh, indicated. Uh, the fact that Kevin is not here today and I am here would seem to indicate that Kevin looked ahead and saw a passage of scripture with which he did not want to deal. And so he left and left uh, the heavy lifting for me. And, uh, and sure enough, for those of you who have bemoaned the fact over the years that we don't talk enough politics from the pulpit, well, today is your day. Uh, yeah, indeed. Um, why don't we go ahead and stand and read from the book of Acts where we are in this story as the people of the resurrection life continue to experience the power of the Spirit and what that means for the religious leaders of that day. We'll pick up our story in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, and uh, Sarah will lead us through this. I'll try to read through it as well. So go ahead, Sarah. So the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. For the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And we are the witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, the religious leaders, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that that the men should be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him, but he was killed. All his followers dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, but he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail, but if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and they ordered them to not to, go, to not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. If the story continued, we'd see that they rejoiced and be encouraged in the name of Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. With that, uh, you can be seated. I'll pray in just a second. Uh, this sermon will be... <laughs> 
about politics. We may not see it in this passage immediately, but there is an incredible political intrigue going on in the nation of Israel at this moment. And when Gamaliel stands up and says these words about whether they are with God or not with God and what's going to move and what's not going to move, he is actually reading things and interpreting God's movements through a political lens. And he's giving the rest of the religious and political leaders of that day option A or option B. And maybe what Gamaliel is missing altogether is that it was always about option C all along. We'll have to do quite a bit of backstory to set up the context for this, and we'll do that as we jump into the text. Why don't we pray here as we begin? And so, God, by your Spirit, um, encourage us and strengthen us, and let us see in the midst of the confusion of the day. Maybe an option C of what you have been up to all along, throughout all of these generations. We ask these things in your son's name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said these words some 24 hours before his death in response to the questions of the religious and political leaders of the day. They asked, are you a king? And he said he was indeed, but my kingdom is not of this world. Must have appeared nearly comical as he stood there in front of the Sanhedrin, maybe sad to them, for he stood alone. His disciples had deserted him. The crowds had dispersed around him. There was no one there to follow him. For the leaders of that day that were used to having a lot of followers and to then wield their influence through the social and political structures of that day, Jesus, who maybe was a threat at one time, certainly appeared harmless to them. Now he was probably deceived in his thinking about who he was as a king, and he was certainly delusional. What a silly claim. You're a king? Where's your kingdom? My kingdom is not of this world, he said. For the Jews at the time, it would have been comical because kingdoms were of this world. They used to have such a kingdom in this world, and that throne of David ruled over the Middle Eastern world. Yes, they had fallen. Yes, they had lost their influence. Yes, they had been under oppression for a significant period of time. But one day, there would come a Messiah who would establish a kingdom that was of this world world. Someone who would again sit on that throne of David, somebody who would wield authority and preside over a kingdom to be manifested in law and geography, in politics and social organization, just like the other kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. Standing alone, he must have looked quite ridiculous. And yet, as he says these words before the religious leaders of this day, some 24 hours before his death, he knows something that these figures don't seem to know. Things these leaders would never seem to understand. Things that many leaders and many people never seem to understand, as they assume spiritual power resides in the earthly, social, and political structures of the day. Caught up in our own ideas of what constitutes power, stuck in our own assumptions about where that power is to be wielded, they, we, can sometimes not see the fact that it's actually the eternal word being made flesh and dwelling among us that stands there. 
Blind to the fact that the one through whom all things were made cannot be contained in transient kingdoms or temporary power structures, however powerful they may seem at the moment. For Jesus had something cosmically bigger in mind than overthrowing a temporary earthly power and setting up a new political system. He came for the enslaving power of sin and to break its power. He came to defeat death itself. And he came for a people to form a new kind of people, no longer defined by geography or throne or temple or political affiliation or ethnicity or nationality or race. He came for a people who would be bonded together in his sufferings, united in his baptism and sharing in his resurrection life. Not connected by land or temple or the normal political structures of an earthly king or a ruling Sanhedrin. They were to be a people in whom the spirit dwell together to bear witness to the spectacularly good news that sin had been broken, that death no longer reigned. They were a new nation, says Peter, royal priesthood, God's own possession to declare the praises of him who had called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He came for them. He came for the earth. Not so that people could expect to flourish within the brokenness of this age of the earth, but to give them hope in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of this present darkness, within this age of the earth, to stop believing the delusion that they can somehow squeeze shalom out of an earth that is not prepared to give it. It needs to be renewed and restored. So he came for the earth, knowing that one day earth and heaven would once again be one, and those things that were sown perishable would be raised imperishable, and eventually then, in that day, tears would be wiped away, and there'd be no more sorrow and grief or sickness, but there is, for now he came to give his people hope that the earth would be renewed. So when that, when that tomb burst open and glorious light, everything changed, a new people would be on this earth, again, no longer defined by geography or throne or temple or ethnicity or race or political affiliation. They were the resurrection people. Shining the light of that future kingdom in this present moment so as to bear witness to a world of where everyone's home actually is, their real home. The resurrection people found hope in grief, joy in sorrow, love in pain. They cannot be contained by land. They do not be, they are not ruled by a leader and they are not beholden to the sad and transient and temporary kingdoms of this world. For a different spirit reigns in them. The powerful religious and political leaders of that day looked at this carpenter kid and probably thought, how sad, how deluded this one is. Doesn't he understand that the right kind of influence is wielded through people like us who hold political office and religious authority? Does he not get it? I wonder if the word made flesh dwelling among us looked back at them and thought the same thing. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. And they missed it. It made no sense to them because they assumed that where God works is within the power structures of the day. And could it be that some 2,000 years later, so many are missing it again, filled with assumptions about how and where and among whom God moves. You know, nearly everyone did miss it back then. But if you look back, there were signs all along that something different was going on in the life of Jesus. They were right there from the beginning, from the moment that Jesus burst on the scene. We could have, if we had looked carefully enough, seen maybe some different kind of kingdom. For three years prior to standing in front of that 
religious council, those political leaders, a Nazarene carpenter appeared at the banks of the Jordan River to greet a desert man to whom the word of the Lord had come and he was proclaiming to prepare your path for this king. Make straight your paths, this desert man said. And that is what you do when a new king is coming to town. You prepare the paths. And in the case of an earthly king, you will literally go to the roads and the streets and the highways and the byways around you and you will pick out all the stones and all the rubble and anything that might hinder this king from coming to claim his new kingdom, this king and his entourage. But it seems that John the Baptist was not interested in the gravel and the highway and the byways of this earthly travel. To prepare the way for this kind of king, he said something crazy, something different, something we somehow missed. Repent. Come to the waters of baptism. They should have sniffed something different was afoot right then when the carpenter came to the waters in this way with no trumpets, no fanfare, no entourage. Not only that, apparently Jesus hardly looked the part of what we would expect out of a charismatic meter, a leader to whom God wields his authority. Isaiah said that he had no stately form or majestic splendor that we would even look at him. Nor handsome in appearance that we would be attracted to him. Jesus didn't even come from the right place for religious and political leadership. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I wonder if he even had straight white teeth. But he was different, different kind of king, not operating within geography or space or politics of the day. So prepare the way, John the Baptist declared, not by picking up stones, repent, come into these waters, be baptized, prepare the way of the king. What kind of kingdom is this? My kingdom is not of this world, he said. Well, if they missed it at the waters of baptism, they could have seen that this Jesus was different by simply looking at those who followed him. Upon leaving the Jordan, Jesus started pointing to people and saying, okay, so so you follow me, he said to the fishermen, and you follow me, he said to the tax collector, and you follow me, he said to the religious zealot. And so if they missed it at the baptism, they had a chance to see this wholly different kingdom in the nature of the followers. You see, earthly kingdoms of power and political influence need the best and the brightest. Certainly, they were picking such people in that day, people of the right pedigree and the right intellect, people of the right social categories. But as this carpenter's kingdom began to grow, it was not the kingdom of the Ivy League and the well-networked. It was the kingdom of failed fishermen and forgiven prostitutes. How ridiculous it must have looked to all of the religious and political leaders of that day for the powerful go to the right schools They sit with the right rabbis. They grease the right skids of the Roman influencers. They're circumcised on the right day. They sit at the right tables. They wear the right robes. They become ideologues in their beliefs. Powerful. Go to Harvard. Do those things. Get in those right places. And certainly you will be at the center of where God is certainly going to be wielding his power You need to get into those places of religious and political influence to do that. But the followers of this king were nothing like the followers of the kingdoms of this world. They didn't know the right people. They were not in the right circles. They did not have the right schooling. Anyone could come, the least and the lost and the suffering and the overlooked. 
And even the corrupt influencers and the violent revolutionaries and the hollowed-out religious frauds all seem to find a place at Jesus' table, where to participate in his kingdom was not about your pedigree, for the way of the kingdom is humility. That's the way in. The way forward is love, and the way of power is always sacrifice. Can you imagine networking at a political party in today's day and age with the rabble that followed Jesus? (laughs) What kind of kingdom is this? How foolish you look with your failed fishermen and forgiven prostitutes. How foolish. But God is pleased to take the foolish things of this world and shame the wise. The things that are not to reveal what really is. My kingdom is not of this world. If they miss the fact at his baptism, if they miss the fact of his followers, well, all they had to do was listen to his teachings to see that maybe something different was afoot. It was a kingdom where the children get in, and the adults so often miss it. It's a kingdom where if somebody curses you, you bless them. It's a kingdom where if somebody persecutes you, you pray for them. It's a kingdom where if somebody is spewing hate, you still seek their wholeness and love, even if it might cost you. It's a kingdom where if you want to find your life, you must lose it. If you want to find your life, you must lose it. Try running on that platform in a political party. You want to know what my kingdom is about, said Jesus? The way in is humility, the way forward is love, and the way to power is sacrifice. They heard his teachings. They saw his followers. They were at those waters, and they missed it. It was no political kingdom. God was up to something different. The signs were there all along. Is it possible that they're not the only ones that miss it? I think what's a bit sobering is even his closest followers missed it. Spending day in and day out with this Jesus that they served, he was doing amazing things among them, and they interpreted the amazing things that then he would see to the end of Rome, and they would once again have the power and society that they think they need in order to be the resurrection people. <laughs> but they missed it. Who gets to sit on either side of you in your kingdom, Jesus, they asked. (laughs) Who gets to wield social influence and political power with you? Is it me? I would like to do that. And Jesus says, oh, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms that you see in this world. For whoever wants to be great in my kingdom is as a servant, and the first shall be last. Later, Later, Peter declared that Jesus would not die in Jerusalem when he finally came to that cataclysmic confrontation with Rome. He would not die. Let it never be, Lord. And Jesus turned to him with this fierce rebuke and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are concerned with the matters of men. I am concerned with the matters of God. And so they saw him, and they followed him. And day in and day out, they said they were believers, Christians, following this Jesus, but they missed it. Along with the crowds, they even cried Hosanna when he entered Jerusalem. And they somehow missed he was on a donkey in that moment, and not on a stallion. And so in Gethsemane, with the moment of confrontation upon him, Jesus confounded them all when he stayed the sword of a friend and healed the ear of an enemy. And then, in front of that Roman guard, he stayed silent. And so his closest followers left him. And one of his dearest friends denied him. Jesus failed his power and let himself be taken into custody like a lamb being led to a slaughter. Who does that? Name an earthly kingdom where those rules make any degree of sense. 
It didn't make any more sense in first century Jerusalem than it does in 21st century Washington, D.C., and so they missed it all together. God was not moving in those petty political spheres of the Pharisees and Sadducees filled with corruption and hypocrisy where the best and the brightest of that first century world traded insults and favors and pursuits of transient earthly power. God had something so much bigger, so much more beautiful in mind. But they couldn't see it. Unfortunately, they're not the only ones. 2,000 years of history is littered with the failed mergers between God's eternal kingdom and the temporary kingdoms of this day. And maybe it's because the rules between them are always different. Maybe they're never meant to converge. Maybe the long track record suggests that where Jesus is working is often outside of the power and the politics of the day. My kingdom is not of this world. Three days after these words, a stone was rolled away, death was destroyed, and glorious life, and a resurrection people emerged on the scene. While the small-minded religious leaders still squabbled over who had what power for a few years within temporary lines and an ever-shifting political map, they missed the fact that God's eternal spirit was bursting among a new kind of people not defined by geography or throne or temple or ethnicity or race or political affiliation, cannot be contained by land. They will not be ruled by a leader. They are not beholden to the sad and transient and always failing kingdoms of this earth for a different spirit reigns in them and boy did they have power they were the resurrection people stuff undeniable the sick were being healed the dead were being raised prison chains were falling the corrupt were being struck down charity was manifest lives were changed love reigned hope restored thousands coming regardless of pedigree the earthly power plays of the small-minded and the self-absorbed in those years must have seemed comical and even sad compared to the eternal power of heaven. To the one through whom all things were made and to whom all things on this earth, under this earth, and above this earth owe their allegiance. No wonder Peter said, Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. No wonder they rejoiced in sharing in the sufferings of the eternal king. Why would they want to walk in compromise for a few years in petty power or perceived freedom? They were not worried about whether their religious freedom was being compromised. They wanted to follow their eternal king. And with all that power, the political leaders of our story in Acts chapter 5 were at wit's end. They had tried everything to stop this movement of Jesus, and they couldn't. So not exactly shocking, I suppose, when they're playing in a transient earthly sandbox and he's playing in an eternal cosmic one, but they still didn't know what to do because this ragtag band of other-centered followers didn't seem to care what they had to say. They were demonstrating in a love and a power that was winning the favor of the people. They couldn't kill them, they knew, or else the people would revolt, but they couldn't let them go or else their power would grow. They didn't know what to do, so they were stuck. And in the midst of that quandary, a man named Gamaliel stood up. I can imagine a hush falling over that room because even among the ruling class of that day, in the midst of the political power squabbles that did persist among the Pharisees and Sadducees, Gamaliel was revered. No ordinary, everyday religious figure was he, a great teacher of the law, a great interpreter of the kingdom, respected by all the people. He was even given a title, Rabon Gamaliel the Elder. To be a Rabon is to bear a title held only by the very best teachers. An awesome reverence, just seven in the history of Israel bore that title, Rabon, and Gamaliel was the first. 
In the Mishnah, it was said that when Rabon Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the Torah died with him. There is not a wiser person, an interpreter of God's kingdom in all the land. He wouldn't miss it, surely. And at first blush, his words did sound wise. If this movement is of God, you will not be able to stop it. it is, if it's not of God, it will be squashed, the voice of reason. He could see it. Or could he? If this is of God, Gamaliel, people are being raised from the dead. If this is of God, Gamaliel, the sick are being healed. If this is of God, lives are changing. People living in extraordinary love and care for each other. If Gamaliel, two corrupt people were struck dead on the spot, hated Gentiles speaking in tongues, prison chains falling. If this is of God, Gamaliel, how are you interpreting these things? What are you seeing? What are you expecting from a Messiah, please don't tell me, Gamaliel, as the greatest religious leader of the day, that you're assuming that God is moving through the political theater of the day. But sadly, it seems that you are assuming just that thing, Gamaliel. For the political lens through which you're viewing this movement is seen and how you're comparing it to past movements that had failed in Theodos and Judas, those were political movements meant to overthrow Rome, restore social power and an earthly kingdom, And the evidence that those movements were not of God was that they failed. But if God had been with them, Rome certainly would have fallen. But even you, Gamaliel, the great interpreter of God's way of life, missed it when comparing the resurrection people to a group of political people. You're eating apples, Gamaliel. They're peeling oranges. Is it possible even the wisest among them was blinded by earthly power Gamaliel gave them option A and option B of political outcomes, and Jesus was working in option C. (laughs) It's about a resurrection people. It's about the beginnings of earth and heaven once again becoming one, where the citizens of that heaven are now on the scene, and God is using them to bear witness to an entirely different kind of kingdom, the only kingdom that will remain, the only kingdom that will not fail, the only kingdom that is eternal and will last forever and ever and ever, for unto us a child is born. And unto us a son has been given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. And so Paul says, I want to be a part of that government. Philippians 3, we are citizens of heaven. Sounds nice. Citizenship is in heaven, sort of soothing to the soul. But I really don't know that as we stand here in 2021, I could make a more, we could make a more radical, life-altering statement than that. We are citizens of heaven. To be a citizen of a place is to claim that place as your homeland. To say yes to that place and the ways of life that are there. To take your cues from that place. To live under the leadership of the king of that place. It also means that when you travel from that place, you are a de facto representative and ambassador of that place as you travel in a foreign land, which is why the book of Hebrews says we are strangers in a strange land. This whole earth is a strange land. Every last political line on this map is a strange land. We're citizens of heaven. 
Can you imagine if the United States of America, as much as I love our country, as much as I have wept on those beaches of Normandy, as we should, but can you imagine if the United States of America or any temporary kingdom of this world was actually a foreign land to the kingdom citizens of the resurrection life? Can you see that might be a life-altering statement? What if it was true? What What if scripture was true that we are actually citizens of heaven? Not dual citizens of heaven, strangers in a strange land. Because if I was born on the soil 500 years ago, you know what I wouldn't be? I wouldn't be an American. You see, the lines on the map are always changing. Transient, are they? Filled with earthly power, are they? This is not a statement that is anti-America. I love our country. But there's only one eternal kingdom. One. And Jesus came to set up the citizens of that heaven in these temporary places to shine a light of the future in our present to call everybody safely home. Gamaliel couldn't see it. He assumed God was working within the political structures of the day. He didn't know there was only one eternal kingdom. Very few people are able to change their lens. Very few people in that day changed their lens. There was one who changed his lens. His name was Saul. He became Paul, and Saul Paul wielded tremendous political power in that time, akin to Gamaliel, but unlike Gamaliel, he changed his mind. It took Jesus knocking Paul off his horse on the way to Damascus to convince that him that he was actually working for the politics of the day and not the kingdom of heaven. Paul really thought he was, but he was missing it. And having been struck blind when Ananias laid hands upon him, More than physical sight was restored, it seems. It says something like scales dropped from his eyes. And he could see. He could see. And among among the many things he knew is that his allegiance was in heaven. That was the realm to which he belonged. And so he declared, our citizenship is in heaven. And for the rest of his life... Paul's life didn't matter whether he was in the original homeland of Israel, his birthplace, being wrecked on Malta, standing in front of Roman kings, arguing with the religious elite, chucked in prison, navigating the wild west of Corinth. He could walk anywhere on this earth in front of any power, be anchored in a different place because his citizenship was in heaven. It didn't matter if lines on the map changed. He was part of the resurrection people, filled with a different kind of power, one of the only religious elite of that day who did not miss it. So many do, even the great Gamaliel did. And so now, uh, as we turn to our time, is it possible that as Christians we are understandably in the 21st century confused and uncertain, things afoot that we don't fully understand, and in all of that understandable nature of the confusion, is it possible that we are missing it too? Is it possible that we risk much as the resurrection people by ceding our citizenship to become Republican or Democrat? Which means the choice is either A or B, something along the lines of either Trump is God's man or Biden is the great healer. We're only given A or B. What if it was C? I can't think of a more life-altering statement for the church at large in the United States of America than to at least consider the idea that Scripture might be right when it says that our citizenship is in heaven. How did we come to these other ideas? So confused by power, are we? When is the last time we knew how to take joy in suffering, to be scourged in the name of the eternal one through whom all things were made? I want religious freedom. 
I don't see anything about entitlement to that in the text. What if it's option C? You know, maybe we could discern some things when it feels like as we're trying to always choose between uh, option A and option B that we have to bracket something off in order to choose option A or option B, whether bracketing off abortion or some kind of corruption or some sort of deceit or some sort of infidelity to create some measure of a temporary off an unholy marriage with A or B when Jesus is playing on the playing field of C. Maybe we missed it. But it's hard to see because there's so many alleged authorities crashing into our time and space, assuming, like many have in the past, like many do in the present, that Jesus is only active among the best and the brightest in Washington, D.C. And so we have the voices like Gamaliel crashing into our day all day long, discipling us. We are formed by Hannity and Maddow. We're formed by Carlson and Cooper, by Oprah and Vischer, by Gladwell and Limbaugh and Marr and D'Angelo and Corden and DeGeneres and Ingram and Blitzer. And all the rest of Santa's reindeer. (laughs) Formed by a host of the most prominent podcasters, authors, and media members that are telling us how to evaluate our candidates to know what's right and good and moral and consistent in God's kingdom from platforms A and B, and maybe it is C. Sounds so scandalous, doesn't it? Citizenship is in heaven. And we can trace thousands of years of Christian who once thought that the kingdoms of this world should be merged with the kingdom of heaven, and they missed it. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. You know, if you try in his words for just a half a second and compare him to what we see and how we act and where we move, we might see some of this option C. He says things like, blessed are the peacemakers. Citizens of heaven bring healing and hope and peace and joy and laughter wherever they go. Can we honestly say our previous president brought a sense of peace? How's it working for Antifa on the West Coast right now? It seems interesting that evangelicals are willing to support violent uprisings from fringe groups on crowdfunding sites. Love that AOC regularly characterizes her political opponents in the most vulgar of terms. Black Lives Matter raising fists to reallocate one form of earthly power for another. Is Jesus really operating in these spheres? Is it really A and B? Maybe it's C. And as I say all that, you can send all your emails to kmeyer at burnhimatthestake.com. <laughs> Line up. <laughs> but before we do that, um, maybe it's helpful to remember how many people have missed it. Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit, and if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Sometimes wonder that we spend 18 years teaching our kids how to find their lives through resumes and experiences, sexual attractions and networking, educations and passions and interests and talents and TikTok. If you want to find your life, we say you need to find it. But in his kingdom, if you want to find your life, you're going to have to lose it for my sake, and then I, I, I promise you, you will find it. You become a citizen of heaven. You'll know to whom and where you belong. Or how about this one? Have this disposition in you that though Jesus was in very nature God, he didn't make his equality with God something to be hung on to. Rather, he let it all go and walked out a self-sacrificing death on the cross so that others could be set free. How many businesses do you know that operate that way? Marriages, do we know, operate that way? Social justice movements operate that 
way. You see, kingdom citizens are about authentic reconciliation where they let whatever power they have go for the sake of the other. Or how about bless those that curse? Imagine that on Twitter. Or pray for those who persecute you. Or love your enemies. Can you imagine someone who may disagree with either Biden or Trump and yet still, instead of mockery and sarcasm about them, they long for the wholeness of both? Met anybody recently who took joy in being flogged? The resurrection people (laughs) do. So I'll say it once again. I think it's understandable that we might be afraid that religious freedom is at stake, and yet there's nothing in the biblical text anywhere that says that we deserve religious freedom. Nothing. Somehow in the text, the people who didn't have religious freedom exhibited a power well beyond anything worried about the politics of that day, and the resurrection people were bringing life into the world even as they were being flogged to this day. Most places in this world don't have religious freedom. And to this day, over history, Christianity explodes in the context of persecution and it gets compromised when it's aligned with and associated with political power. So the signs of option C are all there. They've always been there. John the Baptist prepared the way in a different kind of way for a different king. There were failed fishermen and forgiven prostitutes, upside-down teaching, staying the sword, healing the enemy, being led to slaughter. Gamaliel missed it. Jesus' very disciples missed it. The crowds crucified him when he wasn't going to be aligned with politics. But option C would require a radical reshifting. And instead of trying to decide whether Jesus is a freedom-loving capitalist or a redistribution socialist, maybe we have to come to see that he is neither of those things. So what if, for a long season, maybe an entire generation, we turned off Hannity and Maddow, Tucker and Cooper, Oprah and Vischer, Gladwell and Limbaugh and Marr and D'Angelo and Corden and DeGeneres and Ingram and Blitzer or any of the hosts of the prominent podcasters and authors and media members in our country telling us what is right and moral and good and where Jesus is at work within the politics of the day? What if we were shaped by the singular voice of the Good Shepherd so that we could get to know the ways of his country to somehow find once again what kingdom marriage might be or the kingdom one flesh relationship might be or kingdom charity, kingdom power, kingdom justice, kingdom leadership, kingdom love? Maybe we could use some discipleship, all of us, here. Discipleship that can go generations of what it means to be the resurrection people, to walk in a resurrection life, not beholden to land or ethnicity or nationality or political affiliation, but to be part of the one single government that knows no end. So what if it was neither that Trump was God's man or that Biden was our healer? What if it was, and it always had been, Option C. For death could not hold him. The veil tore before him. And he silenced the, the, the boast of sin and grave. And so to him is the glory forever and ever and ever. It was not a political person who came for us. It was the word made flesh dwelling among us.